Haggai in the first chapter, Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, and in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai and the prophet, saying, It is time, or is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who, has, he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build a temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed you came to little, or it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold their dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains, and the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, of men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared in the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Thus far the word of God, let us pray. Father, all scripture, you tell us, is breathed out by you. It is inspired as you move holy men of old along to write the scriptures from your hand. Fathers, we turn to the old book and to a minor prophet, often obscure and forgotten. We pray, Lord, that would you bring to us benefit and blessing, that we would profit from the words of the prophet spoken long ago, and yet still the word of God enduring and powerful. Bless the preaching of your word. Impact our hearts with it, Lord, that we might be affected to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Title of this sermon, What Are Your Priorities? And having heard the text, uh, you can see how that naturally follows from the text. The text we hear that the church was too busy building the too busy building other things, they did not have time to build the temple of the Lord. They had ceased their labors on the construction. At this point, the foundation was laid, and the altar was there, and then all labors ceased. They were busy with the things of this world. Is that not a present temptation for us? Is something we often stumble with. 
Haggai could be seen as nothing more than a history lesson. Maybe you've read this and say, well, that happened then. So what? Well, we want to consider. So what? We might say, well, we're not called to build a temple. God's not worshipped in this mountain or that mountain, as we heard from John chapter 4. Right? Well, it's true. We, we're not, we don't come to a stone structure. But Peter explains to us we are living stones. We are the temple of the Lord that the Lord is fashioning together for his dwelling place. Peter says, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These people of old had a duty to obey God, even as we do today. Their duty was built. Our duty as a people bought with the blood of Jesus Christ is to holiness, dying daily to sin and living under righteousness. Like these saints of old, we are to lose, we often lose sight of the main thing and we start building things for our own pleasure. We live for ourselves and we neglect the one thing most needful to live for the glory of God who has saved us. In the Old Testament, we find a record of the church making Many of the same blunders over and over again. When we're honest, we say, you know, there we find ourselves just like looking into a mirror. We are weak men. So let us learn from the failures of these men of that day as well as their triumphs that the Lord brought about. Over and over again, this record of the church being easily sidetracked, pulled away from the straight and narrow path of forsaking God's law, turning to their false gods. We see it today. And so we are reminded of the words of Solomon. There's nothing new under the sun. These patterns are repeated. I want you to recall with me a little bit of a history lesson for the context. Jeremiah was a prophet uh, prior to and then during the time when Judah and Jerusalem were finally overrun and been overthrown. He was there when the city was taken. He saw the captives go out, but he suffered with them. Unimaginable suffering during the years of siege, and many died. Ezekiel then was a prophet of the church in exile, and he promised the word of God. It was the promise of restoration and the rebuilding of the city. You remember that passage you read of the man with a measuring rod, measuring this and that and so forth, and a picture of this rebuilt city of God, which, of course, ultimately is the fulfillment in the church age. It's the church that the Lord is building. He's building us. As living stones, as Peter said. Isaiah prophesied the return under King Cyrus. You find that in chapter 44, 28. We were just there not that long ago. The return to the land of promise began with David's son, Zerubbabel. We've heard about um, well, I need to go back a page. There we go. We've heard about this uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and it was prophesied that this would take place, and it did take place. This is David's descendant. Zerubbabel is in the line of David. He's nobility, and it took place in 536 B.C., and that's recorded in the first half of Ezra. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 is the record of the return under Zerubbabel. The second half was under Ezra the priest when he went back, chapters 7 through 10, which happened in 458 B.C. The third return, then, is in Nehemiah, 13 years after Ezra, 
went back in 445 B.C. And he comes and he serves as the governor, and he's overseeing the rebuilding of the city walls. That's much the focus of the book of Nehemiah, the building of the wall, the harassments from the people all around, and how the Lord God preserved them. So between the first and the second return, there's a gap of nearly 60 years. And one of the problems was people in Babylon, they weren't interested in going back. They'd become very comfortable living in the world. They weren't interested in the land of promise. They weren't interested in the worship of Jehovah and being able to go up to the temple and worship God as he had appointed. But then some 60 years later, there was a return. And it's during that gap that the events that you find in the book of Esther take place. It's during that period after the first return under Zerubbabel that God raises up Haggai. Now, Haggai's ministry is a very short ministry. It's about four months. It's a very brief ministry for a prophet. And two months after he begins, Zechariah joins him. We heard a message at Presbytery um, Friday evening uh, that parallels what we have here. Zechariah will then carry on and prophesies for several years during this same time frame. So these people were sent by God to stir up, these prophets were sent by God to stir up his people, to do his will, to be about that which God has appointed. Much in our day as the preaching of the word is designed to remind us of the promises, to hold forth what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus, to stir us up to fruitfulness, even as we heard two weeks ago to abide in Christ and bear much fruit. We live in a day of preachers who very much carry on after that office of the prophet, not new revelation, but prophets who proclaim the revelation that has been once for all delivered to the saints. We hear the word of God to stir us up to holy living because what we see in the book of Haggai is often a problem with us. So Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were the last of the Old Testament prophets They spoke the last words of God until the coming of the Messiah with the last of the Old Testament prophets, John, who is spoken of in that context. This is the last word from these three men for 400 years. Imagine going 400 years with no preacher. What kind of shape would the church be in? What kind of life would we be living without those reminders, those calling to repentance, the holding forth and seeing of Christ? as we're brought back to the truth again and again. Thomas More commenting on the book of Haggai says, the last words of anyone are usually listened to with the deepest interest. But the last words of God to the church before the incarnation surely ought to have a peculiar interest to that church in every period of its subsequent history. We're going to focus on chapter 1 this week, and then next week we'll look at chapter 2. I've got four main headings, distracted, discouraged, and disinterested. I think you heard that from the text. And then a call to consider your ways, a call then to repent. And then we see in this short chapter, we see an immediate obedience that brings God's blessing. So we begin with distracted, discouraged, and, in, and disinterested. It's in the first four verses of this chapter. So the time setting, King Darius is the king of the Medes and the Persians. The Babylonian Empire has fallen. We were just hearing from Isaiah that that was coming. The Babylonians were going to be thrown down. And we're in that period when Darius is reigning. And notice the the precision in the text. It's in the second year and the sixth month of his reign. This this took place in time and space. This is historical. This happened. And Haggai began his ministry as a prophet then 16 years after they returned to Jerusalem. They've been there 16 years. 
and the temple is not built. There's a number of reasons for that, as we'll see. Leaders of Jerusalem are named. They are the ones who are addressed. They're above the governor, the tribe of Judah, the line of Christ. He's mentioned both in Joseph's line in Matthew 1 and 12 and in Mary's line in Luke 3 and 27. Joshua is the high priest. Haggai, our prophet, his name means my feast. He was probably born at a time of the feast. Um, commentators speculated it would have been the feast of the tabernacles or lights that we just heard recently about from John's gospel. We're told little or nothing about this prophet. We don't know his parentage. We don't know his place of birth. We don't know what his occupation are. We know that because many of the other prophets, we have that information, but not with Haggai. He quite likely was born in Babylon during the captivity and was part of the return under Zerubbabel in 536. What do we find that Haggai's style is as we look at how he speaks to God's people? Well, he's a passionate man. He exhorts with passion, even a tenderness. He reproves with burning severity. These two things are not incompatible. And then when he's looking forward to the future, he kindles with poetic fervor as he thinks of the possibilities and even the promises of God. Haggai loves God. Haggai loves God, and it comes through then that that's communicated in his love for God's people. Indeed, these should always be the hallmarks of a prophet, whether in the Old Testament or in the New. A love for God and a love for God's people, a love for the church. Haggai's the type of Christ. He comes filled with the Holy Spirit to preach to the people of God. His message is the message of Christ. It's the word of Christ, Christ the word that is in his mouth by the Holy Spirit that he proclaims to the people of God. Well, verse 2 outlines then the problem. Thus speaks the Lord, the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. This is their conclusion. Here's the work of the rebuilding of the temple. It's grossly neglected. The first had been, at first, the work had begun with an earnest and a zeal. A foundation was laid. That's, that's quite a monumental task bringing in the great stones and setting them in the earth to build a foundation that will withstand the weight of the structure. They begin with earnestness and zeal. Whereas Isaiah records, I mean, Ezra records that that work begin both with shouts from the young men and weeping by the old men as they saw the foundation and they saw the size compared to the temple of old Solomon's temple. And the grandeur was already obvious. It was not going to be the great structure that they remembered when they were young children before they were led away captive into Babylon. And here they come back as old men. And all they see is an altar and a foundation. But then what happens? There's opposition that mounts from the unbelieving world around them. You catch that? Opposition from an unbelieving world around them. That's something we know about today, isn't it? This is the ever-present reality for the church, for the people of God. King Cyrus had not only authorized the work of rebuilding, he was enthusiastic about it. You can go read how greatly he was, how energetic he was in authorizing resources and urging them to go and build the place that God would be prayed to. And even though this is true, the people in the neighborhood... Many miles from King Cyrus, they didn't know about his enthusiasm. They were pagans. They worshipped false gods. They felt threatened. And they mocked and belittled what this little band of uh, refugees returning home were seeking to do. The world was against them. 
and against God's will. That's how we live today, isn't it? The world is against us. My friends, young people, do not ever think that the world is your friend. Do not ever think that the world has your best interests in mind. The world is not at all interested in promoting your holiness, uh, your service of the Lord. You're doing the will of God. The world would drag you away. And if needs be, they will even get violent to prohibit you from worshiping God. Some things never change. So, what do we know happened is King Cyrus was cut down in battle. And so Ahasuerus, the first, reigned after him. And the local opposition then sent emissaries back to that Ahasuerus, and a work order, a stop work order, came from the new king telling the people to stop. And so the local opposition, they thought, we won that one. And the children of Israel, they moved on to other things. Discouragement set in. The enemies were against them. They even assaulted them. They began to have complaining spirits about service to God. What's the use? Have you ever said that in your Christian experience, your struggle with holiness? What's the use? What's the point? It's too hard. Why bother? I think every believer has had those moments. I know I have. We become discouraged. We want to quit. Suspicions begin to take over the church of that day. Skepticism grows in their minds. And a zeal for the work of God grows cold. We have seasons like that in our own life. We lose interest. We get focused on material things. So it was in that place. The land had been idle. Remember why they went into captivity for seven years? Because every seventh year they were to let the land lie idle. They weren't to cultivate it. They were to enjoy the fruits and the benefits that God would give them in the sixth year, sufficient to carry them through the seventh and the eighth year until the harvest of the eighth year, nearly starting the ninth year. And they didn't do it. So, 77s was, I mean, yeah, 77s, four, 49 weeks, or 49 years, they let it go. And so for 70 years, they were in captivity. And so they came back. The land needed a lot of attention. They get focused on material things, food, clothing, planting, building structures. You hear something from Matthew 6.33? What does Jesus say? He says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and then all these things shall be added to you. But we get our priorities off. And so they become worldly. Worldliness took hold of them. Materialism reigned. Thomas More says, having no heart for the work of God, they easily interpreted the obstacles. Get this. They easily interpreted the obstacles, and they were real, in their way as so many divine intimations that they were not to engage in it. And they turned to the greedy advancement of their own private affairs. We saw them with King Solomon, right? Richly blessed. And all the blessing in his heart was turned away from God. And so we see this problem, verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord to the host, saying, These people say. It's interesting when God says, Here's what you're saying. God knows our hearts. Even if we're saying it only in our hearts, God knows it. Remember when Jesus has the man lowered down through the roof before him. And he says, Your sins are forgiven you. He knows what's going on in their mind because the Holy Spirit's made him as a son of man aware of that. He knows their thoughts. There's nothing hidden from the Lord. And so we see here, the people are saying, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. And so they're comfortable with this excuse. 
The time will come later. We'll, we'll build later. The cost is too high right now. Calvin notes this not yet time was a frequent saying of the people. Is it not something we excuse ourselves from doing what we should be doing by saying, well, it's not time. We can, we can do it tomorrow. Yes, yes, they all agreed that seeking to disguise their loss and sloth, their loss, sloth and laziness as being, well, it's the will of God. It's his opposition. And then having been pleased to excuse and pardon themselves, they proceed to indulge themselves in sin. Isn't it interesting how we find our own souls right here in the book of Haggai? In spite of the fact that Darius then became king in 520, and Darius reauthorized the decree of Cyrus and says, get busy and build. The church was comforted and encouraged in themselves with the words of, it's not the time, even though a word had come that they could build. So you see, as I set out from the beginning, they're building an actual temple. But what's happening now is we are living stones. We were once dead as stone. God has made us alive in Christ into salvation. We are living stones. And the Lord is fashioning us. He's shaping and molding us to be stones in the temple. His church that he will occupy, where his worship will take place. And that fashioning of the stone that we are is the work of sanctification. It's the call to put off sin and to put on Christ. It's dying more and more to sin, leaning more and more onto Christ. That's the work that God is doing in us. That's the parallel with this building of the temple with God's work in us. We can also, also be very easily distracted and make excuses, find them where we will. So then we come secondly to the call to consider your ways. Let us consider our ways. Verse 3. Then Haggai, or then the word of the Lord came to by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple lie in ruins? What a contrast. Paneled houses, this sounds pretty nice. They're in these paneled houses. God exposes the emptiness of their excuse. If they had no time to build the temple, how was it that they had time to build houses for themselves? If they were so poor, how was it they were able to build fine paneled houses to live in for themselves? How could they make such arguments when the house of God lay in ruins? We also spend a lot of energy and a lot of money on things that are of no value. They don't endure. This really brought home to me. We're moving. We're downsizing. And we, we did this before seven years ago when we came here. And I just you know, struck with all this stuff. And, and you, know, you have a yard sale or a garage sale and you're, you're selling stuff and you, you, you see the price you're getting for it and you realize what I paid for it and I've hauled it around and I've stored it and I've kept it and I've cleaned it up and I've maintained it. For what? We expend ourselves for things that don't endure. There's many times yesterday as I was dead on my feet thinking that... Uh, It's just all going to burn. But Christ has called us to the care of our souls. Consider our ways. We labor so hard to build what will someday burn, and we neglect that which will live forever, our souls. They'll either live in heaven, the blessing of God, or they'll live eternally in hell and the wrath of God. Jesus came to save us as sinners, to save us from wrath. 
and to shape us as living stones in his temple, that he would inhabit us, that we would be his temple, that he would dwell in the midst of us. Verse 5, we see how they were exposed for their self-deception. God calls his people to what? Notice, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. He calls on his people to stop and think. That's one of the benefits of the Lord's Day, isn't it? If we, we use the Lord's Day as a day of rest, when we set aside the things of this world, the things that are passing away, and we think about what really matters. What is eternal? And I would say to you young people, but all of us present, the world is not going to give us some helpful meme that says, here's your priorities. This is what you should focus on. This is where you should devote yourself, expend your energy. This is worthy. Oh, they'll give us something, and it's all wasted away. It's vanity. It's a vapor, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. The Lord our God in his word, he reveals to us that which is true, that which endures, that which is important. And so we need to stop and consider, what are we doing? What are you thinking? What do you hope to accomplish? And what are your priorities? These are good steps for every one of us. Right now, before we even go on another step, so to speak. You know, people often take stock at the end of the year. Some of you might have done that as last year was closing out. We're here and that was four months ago now. Uh, and, you know, maybe you set out some new objective, new goals or something, reprioritize. I, I have resolutions. I'm going to be resolute. I'm determined to do these things. Well, here we are four months into the year. How's that working out for you? Those things are often, they need to be revisited. We need to take stock. Throughout the course of our lives, we need to learn to pray like David did and pray often, Lord, search me and try me. As the prophet of the Lord with the word of the Lord says, consider your ways. What are your ways, my friends? What are you focused on? What do your financial records reveal about what your priorities are? And many of the things would be worthy. I mean, we're caring for our families. We're putting a roof over the head. And we have to feed and clothe and all those things that are good and necessary. But there's always that category of uh, maybe less and less, but the category of discretionary funds, right? We may feel like that account is drying up. But what do you do with your time? How are you spending your time? Does the balance sheet on your time demonstrate a concern for the things that are eternal? We just heard two weeks ago Christ calling us to abide in him with a promise, a marvelous promise that if we will abide in him, and remember we're told we have to exert ourselves, if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. To what end? To the glory of the Father. The people of God here in Haggai's time, they're not bringing glory to God. And so God has called them to take stock. Verse 6 goes on to say, You've sown much and you're bringing little. You have this effort and it comes to naught that's set down here. God gives them more to think about as they're evaluating and assessing, as they're taking an inventory. Can't you see what's happening? The Lord says, you're neglecting me, you're neglecting my work, and what's the result? My chastening hand is upon you. The good shepherd does carry a rod for our correction. You sow, you get a little harvest. You eat, you're still hungry. There's not enough. 
You drink and you're still thirsty. Not enough. You put on clothes and they're not warm enough. You're yet you're still cold. You earn wages only to see them run away. Wow. Is that not true in our day? But it's not just in our day. It's true down through the ages. But the Lord also is able to bless these things. In Deuteronomy 28, as the children of Israel about to enter the land, God set before them two mountains. It's a picture. There were going to be mountains that they would be able to see. One on that mountain, he says, If you will keep my commandments and follow after my ways and serve me and honor me, I will bless you. Even your kneading trough and all these things in your life, I will bless. But if you refuse, and here's the other mountain of God's curses, all these things that were so positive and negative, the opposite will be true. And these things that are put out in just short order in verse 6 have echoes of Deuteronomy 28. Blessings and curses. Well, in verse 7, God once more calls his people to consider your ways. God calls for self-examination. He said that, and he says, okay, I'll help you. Take a look. Okay, now consider your ways again. Maybe you're a little too cursed or a little too quick, but now you've been brought to remembrance of the way things are. And God says, consider your ways. Haggai's manner was very direct. And powerful, isn't it? Just these few verses, we have a powerful message. It's probing here for them, for us, the Word of God, timeless. Haggai's manner is direct and powerful. John Calvin says, Haggai condemned the sloth of the people for being intent on their own advantages. They all neglected the building of the temple, and he shows them that they were deservedly suffering punishment for ingratitude, for the despised God, their deliverer or at least honored him less than they ought to have done and deprived him of the worship due to him. Do you notice the word ingratitude in there? We connect it back to the fifth commandment that we were talking about earlier this morning as we heard about the law of God, our focus on that. And one of the hallmarks of faithfulness and keeping the commandment is gratitude to those over us who ultimately are a reflection of God. And ultimately we must have gratitude to God who gave us all good things. And indeed, he's given us his son. We don't naturally have gratitude. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have new hearts and our wills have been renewed. We'd have gratitude for all the good gifts of God, but especially for the so great of salvation that Jesus Christ has secured on the cross for us. But sometimes our hearts grow cold. Consider. Your ways. And thus then follows a call to repentance in verse 8. Go up to the mountains. This is a call to action. You've considered ways. Get busy. Take action. Go up to the mountains. Here's, here's a change from what they've been doing to what they should be doing. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build a temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. God says get busy. Get busy about the main thing. Focus on what should be your priorities. Build my house. Return to the work that you've abandoned. Serve me. Make it your first priority. Return to your first love, as Jesus writes to one of the churches in Revelation. Worship and obey me. Why? For God. Take take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord, that I may take pleasure. This is for God's pleasure. Now think about that. They're being called to build a temple of stones. 
Did God have pleasure in the stones? No, he had pleasure in the obedience of his people. That's the timeless truth. What is God doing in us? He's begun a good work in Christ Jesus, and he's promised to complete that work. He's promised that he is a work in us, both the will and to do. All that we need for a life of holiness, God has supplied. And if he took pleasure in their building of a temple then, that he could be worshipped there, how much greater is the pleasure that our God takes as he sees the work of the Son and the Spirit under his dominion as the Father accomplishing our so great a salvation? God takes pleasure in it. And he is glorified. Our lives are to be lived for God's glory. The very first question of the catechism, what's man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jesus came to save us. Not not so we could build our own pathetic little kingdoms. Paul Truck likes to use that language, the pathetic kingdom of one. Your little suffocating little kingdom. Oh, to be about the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died so that we would live to the glory of the Father. And that's exactly what God is saying here. In verse 9, we go on to read, You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. God did that. I think we feel something of that in our day. Particularly this material aspect. He brought it home and I blew it away, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above withhold their dew on the earth and holds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and all the labors of your hands. My friends, are you keeping up what's happening in our nation? We're experiencing drought across this land. In the fertile fields of Southern California, where so much of the produce comes from, drought. We're hearing warnings of food shortages. You know what we often do? I'm saying we, I'm including myself. It's like, well, you know, it's the world. It's all these ridiculous government policies. Yeah, maybe so. But God is above all that. What did we just hear from the text? God says, you brought it home and I blew it away. God says, I bring the drought. He said, I can make the heavens as bronze above you. Think about that picture. Blazing hot sun, no moisture, nothing growing. God does that. You know, maybe for the the people who do not follow them as punishment, but for us, the church, it is to wake us up. It is a call to warning. And we don't need to wait for the world to get their act together. It's we as God's people that we return. We walk in repentance. That's what God is saying to the church at this time, be about the first things. Care about your soul. Long to live a life that glorifies me. That's why I gave you my son. Not just to keep you out of hell, but so that you could live a life for my glory on the world, in the world today. Does the world care what the church is doing? No. Why not? Because we live just about like they do. You see, we're to be these living stones living to the glory of God, bearing fruit, as we heard from John 15, to the glory of the Father, that we would be salt and light, that it would be something attractive and appealing, a savor that would attract men unto God. Because he would use that. Men aren't drawn on their own. They're drawn by the Father, but he uses means, and he uses us as that means. We need to focus on the first things. We need to focus on the Lord, not ourselves. Our priorities need to be the Lord's priorities. So we see Haggai as the prophet of God with a powerful sermon is exposing the hard attitude of the people. 
a misplaced emphasis. You hear echoes of this in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 30. I referred to this earlier. Jesus says, Now if God so clothed the grass of the field which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Wherefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Think about that in our day. You know, food prices are going up. Everything is going up. What do we eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Jesus says, don't worry about that. For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Things look bleak. But God says, I can add these things to you. I can supply your needs. I can meet your needs. God sent Haggai and Zechariah to call the church back to him, away from the snares of this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in this case, we should look here in Haggai. What's the biggest snare? It's our most common one, our flesh. And that's what Jesus, when he says, if you would follow me, take up your cross daily. What happens on a cross? Somebody dies. We're to take up our cross by the grace of God and die to self daily. That's really the message here in Haggai. It's the gospel message that those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. We don't have to live. Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And so we find then, the final section, the immediate obedience brings God's blessing. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Hallelujah. We can shout about that all these years later. Why? Why was it that they did that? The Holy Spirit was at work in them. And the word they obeyed, the, words of, uh, the voice of the Lord their God, the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the covenant faithful Lord. So then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, he sent him again. He spoke this message to people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. I am with you. What was the last words that Jesus uttered right before the ascension to the right hand of the Father? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Is that true for you? Is that true for us today? Is that promise of God here, Haggai, I am with you, the Lord says. Jesus says, I am with you always in the end of the age. Is that still true? Well, I hope every one of you who says you, know, you love Christ will say, well, yeah, it's true. But do we live like that day by day? That the Lord is with us. It's not, I don't say that to raise a point of condemnation. It's a word of encouragement. And that's what Jesus gave it to us, to be encouraged. He says, I am with you always. Children, remember some of the absolute words we've talked about? There's one of them, always. What does that mean? Forever and ever, without end. Our God is with us. What a glorious truth that we don't face anything alone. What we see happening in the text here is God's people heard him and they repented. They changed their way. The past neglect they put away. They had a change of heart, which is what? A spiritual grace from God. They had a change in their minds. that changed their priorities. They set their hearts on things to do with God. Things of an enduring manner. 
And God promised, I'm with you. But you know what? It wasn't that he hadn't been with them. The reason they were hearing from the prophet is because he had been with them. He knew their heart. And in his mercy, he sent the prophet to correct them in their way. Verse 14 and 15, we find the prophet continues the record. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. They got with it pretty quick. Because where was it that we begin? When was it? The sixth year and the sixth month, the first day of the month. And now we find ourselves the 24th day of the sixth month. They didn't wait around. There's something else I want you to see here. When we see Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, he's a king. He's not reigning like a king, but he's the kingly line of Christ. Here we have a picture of Christ in their midst. He's a man, he's a flawed man, but we see him, by the grace of God, standing up like a king, acting in the midst of the people to lead them in the way of God, which is what a faithful king does. And our Lord Jesus Christ is ever faithful as a king. We also see that here's the priest. Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, we have this one who's responsible for the word of God going forward to the people. He's the one who, when the temple is built, that they will reinstitute the worship of the living God, and he will lead and bring the people of God, making sacrifices for their sin. And, of course, we have Christ, our priest, who has offered himself once for all. It's satisfied divine justice, set down at the right hand of the Father, and now he makes intercession for us as our priest. So we have these pictures of Christ and Zerubbabel and Joshua. Men, flawed men, but yet visible and present representatives of God with his people to care for them. So what we see also here is a top-to-bottom revival. It's all-inclusive. The governor, the high priest, and the remnant of the people. And four years later, the temple is built. It's complete. They've been sitting around for 16 years getting nothing done, and boom, they heard the word of the Lord, they obeyed, and in four years it was complete. They followed through. It wasn't a temporary, emotionally driven obedience. It was a true change of heart because of the work of God's with within them. They abandoned their misplaced priorities, and they focused on what really mattered. Let's close with some application. Are you seeking Christ's kingdom first and foremost? Are you seeking his righteousness? Or do you make excuses for the way you live? You do things. You know they're wrong. You know they're sin. You make excuses for that. I'm tired. I deserve a break. A little indulgence here won't matter, will it? So easy how we can justify ourselves and our sin. And I say, well, there was just no other way. I didn't have any other option. It's a common excuse. There's always a better way. Christ is with us. Call upon the name of the Lord. He is able to deliver. And other times we make ourselves as the standard of what is right and wrong, ignore God's unchanging standard. We have providential upheavals in our normal routines. It's a time to assess what the Lord would have us to see. To take a look. So saying, oh, I can't believe this happened. It's like, well, it happened because the Lord appointed it to happen. Lord, what am I supposed to learn? What am I missing? 
Where are my priorities wrong? Help me to get my priorities on what is right. What is always a priority the Lord has for us? To be holy as I am holy. Why? Well, it's the right thing to do, but God says without holiness we will not see the Lord. What he's saying is that uh, if we are new creatures in Christ, we will then have fruit. We will have fruitful, we will have holiness fruit in our lives of obedience to Christ by the word and the spirit at work in us. As a people of God, we need to be diligent and faithful in all these things. God has shown the generation of the church much tenderness and compassion. Consider these people, they're they're a remnant. Everything they had was taken away. They've lived in a pagan land, surrounded by pagan idols and all uh, pagan ways of living, and they've come back to the land, and the land is desolate, and they're trying to rebuild. It's a hard thing. But our God is able. We're surrounded by pagans. We're surrounded by lying messages and messengers. But our God is able to show us. He has showed us His truth. And He's given us a Savior. That we will look to Christ as the author of our salvation. He's also the one that will complete it. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, we do bless You and praise You for Your Word. We thank You for the faithfulness of Haggai, whom You raised up really from obscurity. Yet he was faithful with the message you put into his mouth. And your people heard and heeded your word. And they repented and sought your face and became diligent in all that you called them to do. Oh, Lord, our God, we've heard Christ from the scriptures, even his faithful servant of Haggai from so many centuries ago. Lord, we pray that you would give us the same heart of repentance, of diligence and zeal for the things that are right. Lord, help us. As we go from this place, to think about our priorities. Are we kingdom-minded? Are we kingdom-focused? Are we seeking you first and foremost? That Christ would be formed in us. That we would put to death the deeds of the flesh. Lord, we all need reformation and change. We pray that you bless and bring it about in us. All for your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.